Sometimes when you're driving down the road all by yourself, you begin to hear a voice that tells you you need to look around, pay attention. Maybe something isn't quite right. That voice is me. It's the voice of Gord. G'day and welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. This episode should be dropping on Monday, February 6th, which marks one month of the show being live. And if you're already a regular listener, thanks for being here. And if not, welcome to the show. Uh, as always, feel free to pass this show around. It's meant for truck drivers and everybody else that has lots of time to listen but mostly truckers, so if you know a trucker, send this to them. If you are a trucker, share it with other truckers. I don't advertise, really, and um, this show is only going to get to the ears of others by word of mouth, because that's the best advertising there is. Speaking of trucking, at the end of March, I will be in attendance at the Great American Truck Show in Louisville, Kentucky. The folks at GATS have made a curious error by mistaking me for something y'all might call a social media influencer. I don't consider myself anything of the sort. However, they've given me media credentials. And in exchange for that, I suppose I have to advertise for them. The Great American Truck Show is free. I do believe they would like you to register, though, before you come. And there's a registration code associated with myself in this show. If you do register, um, do me a favor and use the code ZVZTMZ. Thank you very much. Since the show's been out, I've gotten a little bit of feedback. People seem to really like the intro music. And while we're here, I should give a shout out to a now defunct garage band from Toronto called Grand Total and their song Skin Diver. Grand Total are no more. I can't find any trace of them on the internet, really, other than some old ads for gigs. If anyone out there knows anyone in Grand Total or they're listening, uh, thanks for the track. If you're offended, I used it. Uh, I don't know. Send me an email. Maybe we can work something out. My friend Ben Rama uh, mixed... The music and my voice, you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben Rama Music. He's the impresario behind a psychedelic techno record label called Technosis Records. You can find them uh, on the online, technosisrecords.bandcamp.com. Ben is also a great graphic designer, and he came up with the lovely logo you see that says Voice of Gord with the heavens opening and the joke being very well played. Whilst I'm thanking people, um, a little shout out to my friends at the Good Old Boys podcast who've had me on three times. They're lovely guys. Their show is great. Good content. It, it, it is what it is. They're the Good Old Boys. You'll figure them out. You can go find them on Patreon. Um, Tuesday evenings they do a live stream on Twitch. One of these days, if I don't have to get out of bed at 3 in the morning, I might rejoin them for one. We shall see some of you may also know I do a little bit of writing on the side. This past Friday, 
The folks at Compact Magazine published something I written about a major problem we have back home in Canada with the government having banks and financial institutions attack dissenters in a very underhanded way using legislation that was made permanent during the invocation of the Emergencies Act. I describe the situation with a fellow named Jeremy McKenzie in the article and try to make a warning about the grave dangers of your right to speak and dissent being threatened by being removed from participation in the economy by having your bank account canceled. Scary shit. You should all read it. Um, you can go to my Twitter at Driver Autonomy and scroll down. You'll find it or go on over to um, compactmag.com. Those guys are great. Lots of great writers over there. Uh, interesting takes on politics and the culture of the day. Right. Next up, we're going to have a few more guests in the coming weeks. I want to tell you about uh, my friend D will be here. She's a public school teacher in the city of Toronto, a union representative, and we will be discussing something of a disconnect between public sector unions and the Freedom Convoy and the notion of bodily autonomy. Specifically in Canada, if you're thinking to yourself, all my union's all good, well, it's not about that union. Um, this is yeah, very very specific subject, but we also get into the wider COVID regime and... Uh, the reckoning we all need to have with the folks who turned our society upside down for the last three years. Other guests upcoming include uh, everyone's favorite supply chain expert, Ross Kennedy, a.k.a. Huntsman. Great guy. If you guys are on Twitter and paid attention to Twitter in the last couple of years, especially during the Wuhan plague overreaction and everyone's supply chains um, getting screwed up and the term supply chain becoming a part of regular vernacular where it wasn't before. Huntsman's the guy. Um, he, he's amazing. He knows his stuff. I just sort of turned the mic over to him and let him go. And it's a great listen. I can't wait to get it to you guys. Another guest we have coming up is Dr. Ashley Frawley, a sociologist and lecturer at the University of Swansea in Wales. Ashley uh, and I met online last year when she was curious about the Freedom Convoy and found me and we had a couple of very nice chats and we've kind of been online friends ever since. Ashley identifies as many things. Uh, she's a young Ojibwe woman from sort of central Ontario and she's also a Marxist. So we're going to talk about a little bit about Marx, uh, the working class, the Frankfurt School, all things in between and how that relates to my project. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Ooh, scary Marxist, look out. Another guest I have coming up is Dr. Karen Levy, another sociologist at Cornell University here in my backyard of Ithaca, New York. Karen just released a book in December called Data-Driven Truckers Technology and the New Workplace Surveillance. I have a review of that book coming out on February 20th at American Affairs Journal. We're really looking forward to getting that out there. And Karen has agreed to come on the show. And we are going to talk about her book, her seeming love affair with truckers, and her life story, how she became an academic, and 
all of her thoughts on the surveillance nightmare we're all having to tolerate now in these once free United States of America and other places where this infection has spread. All right. Well, I guess we should get on to the show. My guest today is a young lady named Jessica Bonsor, who's lived the life aquatic. We chatted for about an hour and a half, and she shared her many stories of life at sea. And um, yeah, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this, especially my female listeners, female truckers who know what it's like to be a woman in a male-dominated industry. Without any further delay, on to the show. All right, good day, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Voice of Gord. I'm Gord, and this is my voice. Today we have a very special guest, zooming in all the way from uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, a young woman who I've become acquainted with through my friend Delia. A very fascinating life story. Her name's Jessica. She's lived a life on the, on the high seas, driving oil tankers, uh, drilling rigs, works for the Coast Guard now. People sort of know this show and me as a truck driver, and I interview lots of different interesting people in logistics and supply chains and life on the road. Well, the high seas are also a road and very important to uh, international logistics and all that fun stuff. So I'm very honored to have Jessica here to tell us all about it today. Good morning, Jessica. Uh, good morning, Gord. Yeah, you, <laughs> you cut out there for a minute. Uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, I'm happy to be here and join you on your show. Uh, and you're right, there are some similarities. We, uh, on, the, uh, on the high seas, we follow... The collision regulations, also known as the rules of the road. Collision, uh, a little bit of, co collision regula pardon me, collision <laughs> regulations? Yeah, to to avoid collisions, the the proper actions to take to avoid collisions. Yeah. Um, that's the actual name of it, though? There's like some kind of like international seafaring body, and that's literally what they called it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's funny. You work for the Coast Guard now, correct? I do. Yeah, I started with the Coast Guard um, in June of 2018 when my son was uh, about 15, 16 months old. So I had uh, sort of retired from going to sea uh, after he was born and uh, I wanted to remain in the industry somehow. And uh, yeah, the Coast Guard provided some opportunities to get my foot in the door. So it's been a real eye-opening experience to be on the other side of, uh, uh, you know, in the office, because oftentimes in the industry, you get a bit of uh, us versus them with uh, people on board the ships and, and people in the office. So, Wow, color me shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the ships themselves, you get the rivalries between the navigation side versus the engine room or uh, some of the subsea construction. It was the marine crew versus the construction crew. There's always little uh, 
cliques and uh, not so much cliques, I guess, but, you know, rivalries that friendly rivalries that form. Um, but when it comes to the ships versus the office, it always seemed a little bit of a bigger divide. But uh, I'm hoping that I can, uh, you know, help to bridge that gap, um, having come from uh, a fleet, not Coast Guard fleet. I never did sail on their ships, just went straight into the office there. But you do have a fairly lengthy career on boats. I do. I do. Uh, about 18 years of uh, seagoing experience. I So uh, how it all began. Uh, I actually attended Lakehead University, majoring in a fine arts program. Um, and after four years of that and not quite finishing, I decided it wasn't actually what I wanted to do. I spent two days in the university library looking through all of the university and college course calendar books. And uh, I originally was thinking I would do some kind of one-year program at a college, go in, get a trade or something, get out and start working. And then I saw this program, Marine Navigation Technology. And I thought to myself, yeah, I could drive a boat. Um, but it was a three-year program. Uh, so anyway, I was like, yep, this is it. I'll give this a whirl. And so I went to Owen Sound, Georgian College campus, did uh, three years of marine navigation technology. And you start off with two semesters in the classroom, learning all sorts of things, basic seamanship skills, chart work, uh, astro navigation, thermodynamics. You do some basic engineering knowledge, uh, ships architecture all sorts of things and then you start your first sea phase as a cadet um, and my first cadet term I flew from Ontario to St. John New Brunswick and walked aboard my first oil tanker right and that's it, that, that's an interesting journey um just just for uh the sake of some members of my audience might not be 100% familiar with the geography up north Lakehead University's a biggest school in northern ontario it's in the city of thunder bay uh yes the mistake by the lake although i'm not quite sure if that means thunder bay <laughs> or cleveland um and then owen sound owen sound is actually where my uh great grandfather first ended up when he moved to canada from ireland in like 1929 well that nearby owen sound there's another little place called meaford where there's a canadian <laughs> yes. space and owen sound and meaford are kind of on that little peninsula almost that uh, divides uh the georgian bay section of lake huron from the rest of the lake which is one of uh north america's great lakes for anyone listening in the international audience so it should be no surprise that there's a seafaring school uh right in the, basically right in the middle of the lakes and, yeah uh, yeah, it's actually called the Great Lakes International Marine Training Center portion of it that does the marine navigation and marine engineering programs. And yeah, it's there on the base of the Bruce Peninsula. And I've often heard Owen Sound called the elephant's asshole. Um, if you look at Ontario and you kind of turn it a little bit, that lower portion of uh, southern Ontario, you will see an elephant. And right there where the tail lifts up, that's Owen Sound. Oh, wow. I haven't ever looked at the map that way, but, um, <laughs> you know, um, basically everything south of Highway 17 should be cleansed from the earth with the thermonuclear weapon, but that's another conversation. 
interestingly, uh, uh, back to my grandfather, so or my great grandfather, you would know what the Cuddy Sark was, yes? Yes. Right. So my great 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 grandfather, I don't know how many greats was a was a seaman on the Cuddy Sark. Oh wow! And then on another, I don't know if it's the exact lineage. This is all on my dad's dad's side of the family on the Irish side um so we had uh i had one ancestor sailed on the cuddy sark which was the last of the sailing t-ships it was the fastest but then you know replaced by steam and another ancestor on that side of the family worked at the shipyards and worked on the titanic uh the very ill-fated and most famous uh boat ever indeed yes uh the it's uh that's that's quite a good uh, connection to the sea for sure. <laughs> yeah, but and you and yours was just a visit to the library. Yeah, yeah. There's no seafarers in my family. Um, although my dad was a transportation economist, so he did have uh, some connection. He had done uh, actually gave a, a paper at the World Container Ship Convention in Singapore one year many decades ago. Interesting. So in his capacity as a transportation economist, so like, is he just like nerding out in an office for some company or what was he doing? Uh, actually, he was a economics uh, professor at Lakehead uh, University. Um, oh, wow. So your dad taught there. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, one of the reasons to stay and go to Lakehead. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you get a Did you get a discount on your tuition? I did. I did. Um, it was, uh, uh, you don't pay the tuition, you just pay the tax on the tuition. So it was a good deal to stay there and, and go and remain there for four years and not walk away with any special pieces of paper. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned you studied fine arts and like I'm trying to square the circle here. Fine arts to marine navigation. What exactly were the fine arts you were studying and do you practice any of them still? Uh, so my major would, was ceramics. Uh, so I used to have a potter's wheel and, and um, do a lot of stuff. Uh, my friend of my mother's was a professional potter. And so from a young age, I started getting lessons from her. And then growing up, my dad made a deal with my sister and I that uh, he would either pay for our education or our weddings. So we had to choose and we both chose education. So I went to Lakehead for, for four years and then uh, went to Owen Sound for three. Uh, and my sister also went to Lakehead for four years, but walked away with a degree. And then she did a year at a university in France. Um that was also part of the deal. Um, she you... later went on. <laughs> she later went on to get her master's and PhD, but that was much later. And um, do, do you do you and your sister <laughs> speak French? Are you guys bilingual? No. Well, my sister is closer to being bilingual than I am. I speak a certain amount of French. My husband is bilingual, and I've got my son in a full French school. And his school offers free French classes for any parent who wishes to upgrade their French. So I'm enrolled in uh, 22 weeks of French classes at the moment to improve my usage of the language oh very good no it's just interesting because uh delia's husband jj i 
guess it's trilingual English, French, and English, French, and Finn. Oh, I I don't know how good as Finn really is, but yeah, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he definitely he's he's uh, he does have a good handle on on languages. Um, you know, he picks up a lot of phrases uh, anywhere they go. He can get by in Portugal and Italian and and Portuguese and Italian as well. So, so you yeah. know, you you know how I met those two, eh? So I, uh, I, I'm, I'm at this party in Toronto. They, there's, you know, you know how they like hang out with all these techno weirdos. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I used to be uh, amongst them and we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> anyway, we're, we're at uh, cherry beach, which is one of the few sort of nice areas along the waterfront in Toronto. I've been um, to some cherry beach parties. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> you know what I'm talking about then. Right. So I, uh, I, I go to one of these cherry beach things in like, I don't know, 2007 or eight or something like that. And back when they were small, like before they'd gotten so big and out of control, they were fencing things off and charging admission. This is like, you know, um, may, maybe a hundred, 150 people. So I'm speaking with uh, one friend and this other dude sort of shows up and he's got a, you know, kind of a mullet and kind of like a biker handlebar mustache almost <laughs> and a, and a teach in a t-shirt that says T Bay. And I, <laughs> I, I says to him, is that supposed to be Thunder Bay or Terrace Bay? And like, he immediately starts laughing and he goes, no nah, man, Thunder Bay, the mistake by the lake. How'd you know that? Where are you from? <laughs> That's our JJ. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I lived in Thunder Bay for a spell too. My, uh, dad's older brother my, my my late uncle bruce lived in armstrong which is as you know 150 miles basically straight north um he lived there for most of his life uh, my cousin jay and his wife yolanda uh still live in thunder bay and have a second home in armstrong uh, my aunt kate and uncle dennis live in thunder bay a couple of my what's, what's yolanda's last name wanakamek i used to work with yolanda at the keg <laughs> wow yeah why am i not surprised yeah you only ended up working at lakehead for a while too uh that's funny yeah so you're uh in owen sound you do your course and then you go to st john i'm assuming <clears throat> the boat that you walked onto in st john this is in new brunswick not st john's in newfoundland right Correct. St. John, New Brunswick. And, the, uh, um, o- the oil tanker was owned by Irving? Yes? No? Maybe? Yeah. Correct. Yes. It was the uh, Irving Arctic, um, which no longer exists. It's gone to the scrap metal in, in India. To, yes, it was the Irving Arctic owned by the Irvings. They have their refinery in St. John. We loaded all our product there and then went to various locations along the eastern seaboard to to uh, do our deliveries offload product um we carried all kinds of stuff we carried jet fuel low sulfur diesel high sulfur diesel gas gasoline not liquid natural gas but uh anyway we uh went to like halifax um Sydney, Nova Scotia, we'd go to Charlottetown in PEI, we'd go to Cornerbrook and St. John's in Newfoundland, we'd go to the Gaspé Peninsula, uh, Trois-Rivières, Montreal, 
we'd go down into the States, uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, New Haven, Connecticut, Boston, places like that. Um, and then go back to St. John to load again. Do you remember specifically uh, how many liters of product your tanker would hold? Uh, oof, no, we usually mer- me- uh, measured it in barrels. It was quite a bit. Um, so I, a four, a four, a, a, so barrel, a barrel, of a barrel, the barrel measurement means 44 gallons, correct? Or is it 45? Oh, you're getting technical on me here now. <laughs> my, brain, my brain hasn't had to, to think about these, uh, these things in a long time. 42 gallons. Right. Which would, which would be roughly 160 liters, roughly. It was that we carried a lot yeah. uh, <laughs> and it was uh, open loading. Um, so there were fumes everywhere. I almost passed out one time loading fuel. So, yeah, so they didn't, they didn't have a vapor recovery system for a, a, a I, I would think given the volumes you're hauling on a ship, they would want to do vapor recovery because they're basically like, y- you can put that stuff through a condenser unit and get more fuel back out of the deal. Yeah, but this ship was built, I believe, uh, in 1974. Technology was different. <laughs> right. So when you say open loading, that so I hauled fuel when I drove truck um, yeah. for quite a long time. And most of it's bottom loading. There's still a few tank farms, uh, bulk plants here and there that are still, you know, tra- trapped in the 19th century with top loading facilities. Mm-hmm. Um so I'm just trying to imagine when you say open loading, like <clears throat> are, are, so, are, is it just like a spigot <laughs> in the boat. <laughs> well, so we connected um, the pipelines to a manifold on deck uh, and then the product went through the pipelines and into the tanks. Now on the deck of the ship, um, they had these big openings that we would un bolt and slide over to the side and also they just had these like like the fumes just shot out of them like if you so you're basically you're 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 venting to the atmosphere but like ship size yeah wow i that doesn't still go on does it i wouldn't think so no i haven't been on a tanker in a while i i uh i think my last let me look back through my discharge book here my last uh tanker here we go 2001 was the last time i was actually on a tanker so leaps and bounds have been you know developed in the way they do these things since then um but yeah i like because we would take ologies we had these um measuring tapes with like uh, basically a cork on the bottom of them and you would reel it down into this opening um, until the cork hit the fluid. Um, and then you'd look at what the measuring tape said. And then that's how you'd be able to calculate how much you'd loaded, how much space was left in the tank. Wow, that's like that's like <clears throat> what we used to do, doing the dips when you uh, arrive at a gas station to see how much product they can accommodate. Yeah. And, um, you know, sometimes you're trying to also look with the flashlight when you're topping up the tank to to make sure you don't overflow and you know it's like the um 
the rate at which the product is loading is pushing the uh, air out of that tank and fumes along with it. And yeah, you, certain products you really don't don't, don't want to get that in your face, but um, can't help but doing it. And uh, yeah, so that made for some interesting moments. Oh, we did all kinds of things on those tanks. They used to carry like a crude bunker that was thick and then needed to be heated. So we had heating coils in the tanks. Um, but when they stopped carrying that product, we then had to go into the tanks and cut them out, uh, cut all the heating coils out, send them up on deck and send it ashore to get money for the for the scrap. And, uh, you know, we all had our little devices on us uh, that would monitor the um, levels of different gases in the tank. And if anybody's alarm started going off, out you go. <laughs> wow so those coils they were basically single use then like one and done no they were in there for years but it was just the the life of the ship it no longer was going to carry that product so they removed it for the minute amount of space it would increase to carry more of the other products that we were still carrying right life on ship how many how many crew members on a oil tanker that one had 23 uh from the captain on down to who like what's everybody's role when you have a crew that's that's only that size uh we had a captain a chief mate a second mate and a third mate uh we carried a bosun three watchmen or able-bodied seamen ab's uh and a day worker on deck um there would be a chief engineer second engineer third engineer and three oilers a cook and a second cook slash steward i'm sure i'm forgetting some people um, what's the bosun so bosun is short for boatswain and he's kind of like a deck foreman he's um generally the most experienced deckhand who then is the liaison. So the chief mate is in charge of assigning the jobs for the day for the uh, deck crew. Uh, so he'll have a little, you know, have his morning coffee with the boss and they'll chat about what they're going to do for the day. And then the boss goes down um, and uh, assigns the jobs to the deck crew and kind of monitors the progress of that. Uh, and then if he notices anything while out on deck that needs to be, fixed repaired addressed he'll you know let the chief mate know and take care of that um generally they're pretty good with their rope work and splicing oh that ship also carried a pumpman we had uh, there was a room with like 60 valves that you had to turn by hand to set up the correct configuration for loading the product into the right tanks um, so yeah, we had a pumpman on that vessel as well, which on the newer models that are all computer operated, you wouldn't require that position. <laughs> right. I was going to say, cause it sounds like the pumpman wouldn't be very busy while you were out at sea. He'd just be <clears throat> loading and unloading, right? I'm sure he had some other, you know, maintenance and things to take care of, but, uh, yeah, he was definitely busy, uh, flat out as they'd say, uh, when we were in port. Right. Let's say you're uh, you, you leave St. John, yeah, and you, you head down to Boston. How long does that take you at sea? Uh, St. John to Boston's not that long a trip. Um, 
you know, uh, maybe less than a day, I would think. Wow. So basically you would make it there in the same mm -hmm. time as the truck would leaving St. John driving through New Brunswick, crossing the border down through Maine and all that. You it might have been longer than that, but I, I mean, that's one thing my brain doesn't, I'd have to like every trip, I would have to look and, and review the passage plan. <laughs> it might take a bit longer, but it's not that far. Right. Um, and so what were and, you, what were you doing on the boat? Were you the navigator? Yeah, I was a ship's officer, navigator on board. So depending on what position, cause I sailed as everything like, uh, Throughout my career, I, as I said, I started as a cadet. I did work as a deckhand. I was a third mate, second mate, first mate. And then uh, after leaving the tankers, I went to offshore oil and gas industry and I got my dynamic positioning operator's license. So I also worked as a dynamic positioning operator, um, which is a different way to control the, the movements of the ship. Um, but yeah, when you're an officer on board, you'd be assigned different duties. So you might be the navigation um, officer and you'd be in charge of all the chart corrections, passage planning, um, updating the electronic charts, uh, different things like that. Or you might be considered the safety officer on board. So then your role, like every month, you'd have to check all the fire extinguishers, check all the lifeboats or rescue craft, fire any firefighting equipment on board, like the uh, hoses and nozzles, check the like EPIRBs and SARTs, that's the um, emergency position indicating radio beacon or a search and rescue transponder. So there's all kinds of different um, equipment on board that uh, that you might be responsible for. Like when you're at sea, you can't call 911 for assistance. So you have to basically be a jack of all trades. Um, and, uh, you know, we do an intensive amount of say first aid training and marine emergency duties training, which you have to now renew every five years. And with that, it is learning about the, all the different types of fire extinguishers and how to maintain them, how to use them, what to use them for, um, lifeboats, what equipment's required to be carried on board a lifeboat, um, how to operate them safely. You do uh, uh, training on hypothermia. Um, you have to get into a big wave pool and like they flip a life raft upside down. You have to be able to ride it and get into it from the water. Um, so there, there's a lot of different training, um, that, that, uh, you have to undertake simply because when you're at sea, you're, you're, uh, you're yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say you're, you're on, you're on your own. Yeah. And like the tankers, we didn't carry a medic. Most of the larger offshore vessels do carry a full like medic and there's a hospital on board of so sorts, like, um, with a more equipment than you would carry on a vessel without one but uh you hope you never need it but uh you, you, at some point you do <laughs> right but you guys like if you're so you're basically doing what might be considered the marine equivalent of local delivery right like you're not getting too far away from your home port of saint john on the tankers we weren't no on the right. tankers we weren't and um like in St. John, we wouldn't stay for much longer than 12 hours. Everything there was uh, revolved around the tides. 
Um, and that's uh, basically uh, 12 hours, uh, you know, uh, from high tide to high tide. So you could only travel on the tides. Yeah. So Saint, miss- Saint, 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 the St. John River empties into the Bay of Fundy, which has the highest tide change in the world, correct? Correct. So what's the, uh, how, how, how much, how, like, what's the difference between high and low tide there on average? Like how I, many, think about, I think it's about 26 feet. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, uh, it, it's, as you say, the highest tides in the world. And so that's why we're dependent on that. Just to make sure that when you're going to the dock, you have enough water below the keel. Um, especially with those Irving tankers, they were only single hulled, uh, meaning that, you know, there was just about an uh, inch of steel between a whole bunch of petroleum products in the in the ocean. So you wouldn't want to be running that aground. Uh, now all the tankers are double hulled. Uh, so they have a void space underneath the tank so that if you do have a disaster where you you hit bottom or, or something there's uh you're not going straight into a, a cargo tank right wow so uh 26 feet i'm just like imagine for a minute i i, I used to uh i used to work near a port in australia called dampier and there was a i used to uh service rig tenders sometimes as part of my jobs down one of my jobs down there so basically hauling drilling fluids and mud and baskets full of equipment and, you know, casing and drill tube and all your, all your parts and equipment that go on and off of a offshore drilling rig. But uh, at Dampier, they also had an iron ore uh, loading facility. Um, there's, a, there's a bunch of these uh, ports along the northwest coast of Australia because there's a big mountain range there called the Hammersley Ranges, and that's one of the world's largest iron ore deposits. And so they have all these trains that come in and they load the boats and it would be incredible. You'd see uh, an empty iron ore boat would come down from wherever they were coming from in Asia. And I, I think it was something like eight meters between like once they, they would pull into port, get loaded. And that's how far down. The, what do you call it? What's the technical term for when a boat is sitting loaded in the water at maximum capacity? Yeah, so that's the vessel's draft. Right. Um, and on the on the side, they'll have painted draft marks. So you can see um, when they're in light ship mode or uh, ballast or uh, fully loaded, you can uh, see uh, how much of the vessel is then below the water line. If you're if you're if you're operating an oil tanker, I'm assuming you can't just like pump uh ocean water into the same tanks as that you had product in like is there separate ballast tanks for taking on ocean water for when you're yes yeah there's separate lines and and uh pumps and um and tanks um it's uh like on some ships they will convert the tanks after the fact so some cargo tanks can become it but they'll have to be cleaned out and uh, all the lines flushed before you could do that because yeah you're you're not wanting to pump any of that product over the side one problem that ha- did occur you might be familiar uh with zebra mussels in the great lakes oh yeah uh, that came from uh you know 
contaminated ballast water coming in off a foreign ship and then they pumped it out in the lakes and the, the zebra mussels were not caught in the filters and they got into the into the great lakes wow so they they really were brought from somewhere else they they were the definition of an invasive species yeah right yep. <laughs> and then they've got some new regulations on ballast and ballast pumping and things like that that uh you know, it always takes some form of disaster to make improvements to the operations. <laughs> did, you, did you ever get up into the Great Lakes or like just as far as Montreal? Yeah, no, I never actually sailed commercially on the Great Lakes. Um, I did uh, pleasure craft sailing on the Great Lakes quite a bit growing up. But no, I didn't ever commercially sail on the on the lakes because right from the get go, I went to the ocean and uh, and it stole my heart vast open spaces do that I'm, I'm a big fan of deserts uh somewhat opposite of the ocean but um <laughs> you know, i've been to australia a few times i always like trucking in the outback um the western united states i'm a big fan of nevada and like the you know the sort of high desert eastern oregon there's just nobody around and all that empty space and like you know the the sort of the visual of being able to look out and see nothing like it sort of puts a bit of a buzz on your head. eh? Yeah. Well, it's the sunrises and sunsets that are like unimpeded by anything. buildings, anything. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's, it's really nice. I, on certain vessels, I worked uh, four to eight watch. So I worked four till eight in the morning and four till 8 PM so you always got the best sunrises and uh, sometimes sunsets, depending where you were in the time of year. But uh, that's awesome. So speaking of like you know psychology and buzzes on heads and um you know the the sort of fringe benefits of working on a boat, um do, do you care to discuss the sort of um the 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 psychology and the vibes of uh, being a woman on a boat full of dudes? <laughs> yeah that's a that's definitely a, a big part you don't, of you, you, don't, you, don't have, you don't have to if that's if that's if that's too uncomfortable a question no. you don't have to answer it but i am curious no i took the approach that every time i stepped aboard i was gaining a whole bunch of brothers and you know i feel like it was harder for some of them to uh except having me on board than it was for me to personally be there um I, I i got a wide range of reactions you some of the uh, older generation uh would either and it kind of went one of two ways it was either like uh it's bad luck to have a woman on board or it was like they thought it was their granddaughter or something and like, oh, dear, let me get that for you, dear, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, it took them a while, some of them a while to kind of adjust because back then there weren't so many women at sea, uh, at least not around where I the vessels I was on. And then uh, there was some inappropriate comments, but uh I shut those down pretty quickly just to set the tone. And, and yeah, there were certain people who I guess were uncomfortable when I became uh, in a position of authority. 
um they they didn't uh you know they had a hard time handling taking um direction or or uh orders i guess from from a female um certainly uh i will say i noticed that a lot with crew from newfoundland uh you know oh well shouldn't you be a nurse or a teacher like or work at the post office because that was all they had ever <laughs> all oh, they had ever seen the women in their communities do you know they, they the women weren't the ones going to see so it was um and you know uh i did hear uh oh you're too pretty to work on a boat I'm like what does that even mean like <laughs> uh you know it, it just there were a lot of things and it was really funny. There was one, one guy, um, an older gentleman and he was a deckhand on deck with another guy. Um, and they worked together and, and, you know, always two on deck for safety reasons. And I was there as a cadet, uh, and I had been assigned on their shift to learn from them. And the one older guy, he was never really sure, like how to speak to me. And, uh, so anyway, he his name was Kenny, and he was talking to his work partner um, Morris, and I was out on deck, but not really near them. And I guess he was telling a joke to Morris just as I was walking over. So I heard the joke, but Morris didn't let on that I was standing behind Kenny, and Kenny was like, well, "I got one for you, Morris. There are tulips on the table. There are tulips on the walk." But the tulips that I like the most are your tulips around my cock. <laughs> You're standing right behind him. Standing <laughs> right behind him. Oh, man. And I was just like, oh, that was a good one, Kenny. And oh, he spun around and his cheeks were like poppy red and he he did he was he was stumbling for words it was uh, quite funny anyway from then on out we were we were cool because he knew I wasn't offended um by his joke and so you know then I was one of the guys um so that was that was pretty funny that's <laughs> well I I don't know I, I I've always considered myself a little bit of a stick in the mud or maybe I don't know maybe it was like part and parcel of like growing up in a divorced home. And it was like always my grandmother and my mom and my aunt and stuff like that. Like I never, I don't know, you know, I, the whole, there's certain sort of gauche humor, you know, that I never really partook of. Uh, I mean, whatever, I'm still a dude and a dude gonna make observations that dudes make. I'm not above that, but like, <laughs> I can understand why this fella's cheeks went <laughs> full poppy red. <laughs> I remember I, I, I did a, a few seasons on the ice. Now, obviously, this is not exactly like being on a boat, but like I can imagine when, when you have a small group of people doing the same thing for extended periods of time, there's that sort of like camaraderie you build with the other people. You're definitely with these people more than you are with anybody else. I mean, uh, so, well, as a cadet, I mean, I was on board for four months straight, which isn't normal with Canadian contracts. But uh, most of the people on that ship, they were doing four weeks on, four weeks off. Um, but you're there and 
you know, 24 hours a day. And if you're on shift for 12 of those hours with the same person, you know, I, I don't spend 12 hours a day with my husband or my son. Like, <laughs> so you do spend, um, longer with them. And then even in your off time, you might go and eat your pre-shift meal at the same time or end up in the gym at the same time or watching a movie in the mess room at the same time. So you're, you know, it is uh, intense. And then you do go through sometimes some, you know, uh, hair raising adrenaline pumping situations with each other too. So that is also, uh, builds bonds and, uh, yeah. Could, could it, you could you describe what one of those situations might be like what like something breaks down on the boat or maybe there's a fire or something like what what would you call a hair raising situation? Well, so after the tankers I was on uh anchor handling tug supply vessels HTS um vessels and uh so those are like really large uh tugboats and we had um big winch on board, uh, for, for towing, uh, we had, you know, other equipment on board. And so we did a lot of different operations. Uh, so sometimes you're loading cargo pipeline or containers full of gear, uh, for the rigs, and then you're bringing it offshore to offload. So you have to position the vessel underneath the crane of a, either a platform, a rig or an FPSO, and they'll send down the crane hook to, and you connect it to the hook on the, or the lifting apparatus on the container. Uh, and then they, you know, lift it away. Uh, but sometimes you're backed in under a rig and these supply boats have like an open stern. Yeah. Like a, a, a rig tender. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the, the seas one time were just like shooting up the back deck. Like there was no other way to position the vessel. And we had guys on the back deck and, you know, the seas come up and onto the deck. They're like lifting containers. Uh, like it's, some of the containers are open and we had a guy had to actually like jump in a container so that he didn't get washed off the deck. Um, things like that. Like you're just out in these sea states or if it's storming, we were, uh, at sea off the coast of Sable Island on a anchor handler when Hurricane Juan came through and you're looking at 20 meter seas like the the you know the vessels just nobody sleeping for two days rolling out of your bunk it, it, when you go down the stairs that the ship you know, pitches or rolls and you're just like suspended in midair because the boat dropped out from under you like there's all kinds of uh, things wow. that can happen and uh you know you go through things like that um hurricanes the, the big storms or some of the operations on the back deck when you're hooking things up and you've got wires or chains under tension and and something snaps uh you know and things go awry and you've got a you know, stay calm and, uh, make sure you're not standing in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, other times like, uh, we had, um, it, it, in the early days of the, of uh, my experiences offshore, when you were loading containers onto the deck, the guys on deck would go and, and actually push the containers in place while they were still suspended from the crane. 
Uh, and, you know, you see you guys get their fingers squished between two containers. And, you know, mm. Like they take their glove off and, and skin and other, go with it, <laughs> you know, and then you got to spring into action to, to apply first aid and, and uh, you know, uh, help your teammate. You're basically your second family member who's, you know, going into shock and uh, oh. things like that. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I, well, I, I had it. I remember uh, another seafaring person. I don't know if I read this or it was relayed to me, but the say, what was the saying? Um, the ocean is a big, scary monster. And sometimes it's trying to kill you. <laughs> and I can only imagine like, you know, I, 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 I worked the, the dock at Dampier and some of those rig tenders, like you say, the rear end of the stern end of the ship is basically like an open flatbed. And when, when you're using the term containers, it's not, you're not describing 20 foot and 40 foot ISO shipping containers. They're like open. They're kind of like big steel crates. And sometimes you'll have casing or drill tube or tools or bits or whatever inside them. And there's a bunch of cables that like hook up to the ends. And so like if, if, if the boat's kind of like bobbing around in really rough seas underneath a drilling rig. And like, so you're trying to hook up a crane to a container on a boat that's getting bounced around by all these waves. It's like, you know, the, the possibilities for disaster are legion. Yep. Yep. It's uh, one of, <laughs> before I started going to sea, one of my mom's phrases was all, you know, when something would go wrong, she would always say, Oh, well, don't worry. Worst things happen at sea. And I'm like, yes, they do. <laughs> don't wow. use that phrase anymore. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it. Everything's kind of, you know, big and heavy. And then you got the unpredictable movement thrown into the mix and, um, you know, things end up under tension and uh, you just have to be very, very hyper vigilant about your surroundings. Um, and you, that's why there's always at least two people because you got to look out for each other. And it's exciting. It's a it's an exhilarating uh, place to be at sea um, across the Atlantic Ocean a few times. Once we did it uh, towing an FPSO, which is a floating production and storage object, which is basically a huge tanker that has a turret that fixes to the seabed um, where uh, it loads product straight from the um oil patch and uh, they usually stay in one place um but every now and then they need to go for maintenance into a dry dock and this one was going from offshore newfoundland to uh, rotterdam for its dry docking so um our tug i was on the atlantic kingfisher which is also atlantic towing is also an irving company so the atlantic kingfisher and we towed it across the Atlantic to Rotterdam dropped it off there and then went up to Aberdeen and Scotland to work on the spot market. And you just kind of sit there until some rig needs a tug and then you get a contract and you go and do whatever the job might be. And then, uh, so tell me, was- tell, tell me how the, uh, tell me how the tugboat slash rig tender spot market works. That's interesting because I, I met a couple of the guys that worked on the boats in Dampier and like the, the crews on these boats would be from all over the world, you know? And like, uh, I, I was on deck. I was, I was actually up in the, uh, uh, in the bridge on one of these boats doing like a safety meeting right before 
we do loading and unloading. You know, the first mate was from Norway and the captain was, you know, English. And, you know, a bunch of the guys on the boat were from the Philippines <laughs> and a couple of guys from like just all over the world. Eh? So and, and 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 you never quite knew who owned the boats or where they were flagged. And like just because we were working in Dampier doesn't didn't necessarily mean that like all the boats were Australian. Right. No, no. Like we I was the. Uh on a Canadian vessel when I was there and we were tied up with, you know, European vessels and a wide variety of, of uh, different shipping companies that uh, had their boats there. You just kind of, Aberdeen's a great spot to hang out while you wait for a job. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> describe, describe hanging out, waiting for a job. What does that entail? Like, so like, do you get to like, <laughs> hang out on shore or do you have to be set at the ready at a moment's notice to go? Yeah. I mean the, you know, when you're on board a ship, you have your set schedule of what hours you particularly work. Um, but when your shift's over, you, you are able to go ashore and explore. Um, usually, you, you know, you have like an hour's notice, you, you know, if you get a job and you're going to go, then they can call and uh, get everybody back to the ship that needs to be there. Um, but yeah, like the boats, we would go into the finger piers, tie up, um, while somebody in the office is, you know, looking at making some deals and, uh, finding jobs for the boat to do. Um, it could be as easy as a, a cargo run, you know, you just uh, load up and bring gear somewhere, or maybe it's a rig move. Um, we did, uh, quite a few rig moves up there. Um, the drilling rigs they'll put out anywhere from eight to 12 anchors. They'll hire usually about three vessels, um, maybe four. Um, and, uh, you know, you, they go out and you might, each vessel might lift three or so of, of the anchors for the rig. And then one of them will be the lead tow boat. Um, but you'd have a couple of boats still, uh, attached as a break. Uh, boats as well uh, and then you move the rig to a new location and then you set uh, the anchors back down so it could be that and all of it's very weather dependent sometimes you get hired and then the weather gets bad so you just sort of you're on hire but you're waiting and then you get a move as soon as you get a weather window uh, we ended up on standby uh, in the Shetland Islands of over Christmas one year, which was great. Um, the weather was terrible and we were on hire for this rig move, but we knew it uh, wasn't going to happen anytime soon. So I don't know, we had at least 10 days tied up waiting for the, <laughs> waiting for this weather window. Um, so we had a quite enjoyable Christmas in, uh, in the Shetland islands. <laughs> oh, oh my, I, I've been to Scotland once I was over in the outer Hebrides, but uh, that's not where the oil drilling goes on. The oil drilling is like much further North and East of there. Correct. Like the other uh, side, North Sea, and uh, yeah, north of Norway. There's quite a bit um, all around the the Shetlands. Like it's there, there's a um, a huge offshore oil and gas um, industry over there. Did you ever get up to the Faroes? Uh, didn't make land there, but certainly in the waters around them. <laughs> right. I uh, when I was younger and I was a little bit more footloose and fancy free. I was always plotting my next like backpacking adventure. I mean, was, most of them 
remained fantasies and were never realized. But um, I remember reading in a book one time that you could uh, you could book travel on certain cargo ships like you, you would pay them to be a passenger. I, I don't know how much of that still goes on. Maybe it got like blasted away by insurance or maybe boat companies don't do it anymore. I don't know. But I, I was trying to plot this trip where I would go from St. John's, Newfoundland um, up to Iceland. And then in the summertime, there's a ferry that goes from the east side of Iceland from this place called Seyrisfjörður. And you can go to the Faroes. And then once you're in the Faroes, you can take another ferry south to Scotland or carry on east to Norway. Um, I think that ferry still runs. I just never organized the, the 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 cargo ship part from Newfoundland to Iceland because there, there's a big shipping company in Iceland called Emskep, which I think is the sort of like state-run shipping company there, and they stopped taking passengers. Uh, on board their cargo runs okay for some, for some reason so i never did make the st john's to uh Reykjavik connection and ended up I, I did go to iceland at one point but like i did it like everybody else i flew yeah no that i'm skip they still their ships come in and out of halifax all the time but yeah i'm not sure if they i guess you're saying that they don't bring passengers anymore than uh, they do they're just bringing us cargo yeah mship does a milk run they sort of do they hit all the ports along the east coast i think they go to like they'll leave Reykjavik, they'll hit st john's halifax boston new york and then do the same thing on the way back yeah no they uh we see them in and out of port here but i know like the quite a number of people europeans they'll put their uh campers on auto carriers and get them shipped over here and then they'll fly over and uh get their camper and do like cross uh, north america road trips and then bring them back to halifax and get it back on a auto carrier to go back to to europe uh so when you say auto carrier other people might call them row rows you roll on and roll off the freight yep yep um they get called that as well. Um, we get a lot of those here, like any uh, European made vehicle uh, has probably come through Halifax <laughs> on so, its way to here. I haven't been to Halifax in a long time. I think the last time I was in Halifax was like, whoa, 2008. It's been, been a little while. But um, so Halifax has a really interesting sort of history because of Bedford Basin, which is like, you have the narrows, right? You come into Halifax from the ocean. There's like a long narrows and then like a bunch of bridges that go over from Halifax over to Dartmouth or like as some of the locals call it, uh, Springfield and Shelbyville. And then you have this big, huge, basically basin. And like um, back in the day when they were organizing, you know, uh, uh, fleets of cargo vessels for the war effort during World War II, like everybody would like, get together and, 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 and make a fleet in Bedford basin and then all head off across the ocean together. Yeah. There's uh, two bridges there that cr cross from Halifax over to Dartmouth and, and the narrows. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a big uh, Harbor with lots of different uh, docks. Uh, we take all kinds of vessels. Uh, Coast guard has a base here. We've got the auto port. We've got a couple different container ports there's a big naval uh, dockyard, um, plenty of um, 
tour boats for the summer. There's a gypsum dock in the basin. A gypsum, uh, a gypsum dock. So you mean like dry bulk, just like powder gypsum? Yep. Right. Is there like a gypsum mine nearby or is like that coming from other places? Uh, it's There is gypsum mines um, in Nova Scotia. I believe it's the Hansport area, um, which isn't far. It's not far at all from Halifax. Lots of trains that come and, and uh, take away the different cargoes as well. There, it's quite a hub of all kinds of transportation. Yeah, yeah. Halifax has always been a big deal in that way. And I, I, I recall there's there's some kind of like a maritime museum there I think I visited once. Yes, yep, right down on the waterfront. The uh, um, I think it's uh, maybe Maritime Museum of the Atlantic. There's sort of like a, you know, like a long cultural history of seafaring too, right? Like sort of embodied by people like, you know, Stan Rogers, um, the, the singer from Cape Breton. Right, is he from Cape Breton or is he from like the mainland? I don't want to, I don't want to offend any Stan Rogers fans that might be listening to this. Yeah, um, he is a, a popular guy. He was actually born in, in uh, Ontario, Um but he spent a lot of his summers in the Guysborough County area of uh, uh, Nova Scotia. Right. Is that mainland or Cape Breton? Mainland is Guysborough. Okay. And is that is that where is that where like uh, the festival that celebrates his music and life takes place? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, I've never been to it, but I've I've, I've heard of it, and I, I understand it's quite a big deal. Yeah, I've never actually been to it myself either, um, but I've, I've wanted to in the past. It just never worked out. A lot of times I was at sea when it was going on. Right. So um, since you first, what year was it when you arrived in St. John and went to work for Irving's? Uh, 2000. So you've uh, have you lived continuously on the East Coast ever since? No, no. I moved to... I was still living in Owen Sound that, that when I first started because of school. And then when I finished the school, I moved to Halifax to start um, my career there. I was in Halifax for two years. Um, and then I moved to, well, so I was working for Atlantic Towing and we were on, I was on the supply boats working offshore Sable Island with the rigs there. And then it got a bit political uh, with the offshore oil and gas industry and the contracts that we had were being moved to St. John's Newfoundland to the Grand Banks rigs um, and fields, oil fields. And uh, basically uh, management came and, and told a crew to, that we would have to move or lose our jobs because they wanted, I believe it was 97% of the crew to be to local to St. John's. So I moved. I was at the time footloose and fancy free. So I thought, what the heck? Yeah, I'll move. Um, and so I lived in St. John's for three years, uh, working offshore there. Uh, like right, right in the city or? Yeah, yeah. Downtown on, on uh, the corner of Gower Street and King Street, right across from Halliday's Meat Market, uh, which any Newfoundlanders here will or at least some townies they'll know of um it was you know it was a lot of fun um 
but I personally found the weather there a bit um, depressing. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, nor- you know, North Atlantic cold and gray a lot of the time. Cold, gray, windy, foggy. Um, and then when you're working offshore on the Grand Banks and you're there for 28 days and you don't see further than a few meters in front of your face day in and day out because it's so foggy it's like working on a uh or inside a cotton ball um it's it's hard on the head well you know it's funny i i had a conversation with some friends we were talking about the science fiction series that was on i can't remember it was like one of the one of these streaming services it was an adaptation of this book series called the expanse uh have you ever heard of it no all right, so The Expanse is this, it's basically a series of novels uh, that are set several hundred years in the future. Humans have colonized the moon and Mars and a bunch of the uh, moons that orbit Jupiter and Saturn. And there's this whole kind of economy of, of mining, you know, these moons and a couple of the asteroids in the asteroid belt. And there's this whole social dynamic because like, Earth is overpopulated, so they don't let anybody that lives out there move back. And Mars does the same thing. Like, Mars is its own thing now. And then there's everybody that lives on uh, bases in the asteroid belt or on these various moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And those people are uh, roughly called belters and are represented by this political organization called the Outer Planets Alliance. But anyway... One of the things that struck me in watching this series is like everybody who is living on Mars or any of these bases out in space, you never really get to see the sun. You never get to like step on grass, go for a walk in the woods like you're living in a tube in space or in a a tube or a building on the ground on a moon of jupiter that's you know however many gazillions of hundreds of millions of miles away from here and like that's your life there's no going back to earth right and so um the opa people are kind of like i i I describe them as like space antifa they're just they're just pissed off at everything and causing trouble and i kind of get why like i i and, and i mean Maybe this uh, uh, this is not a unique observation to me at all, but like, you know, if people are going to make, you know, uh, space exploration a thing and, you know, Elon Musk wants to take people to Mars and all that, but like, m- maybe they need to talk to people like you, who, as you say, you lived in a cotton ball for a month and it drove you crazy. Well, imagine, <laughs> imagine, imagine being stuck on a spaceship going to Mars for however many years it takes you to get there and then you set up Mars and then you want to turn around and come home. And it's like, what, what's that going to do to the human psyche living in a steel tube for years? Yeah. And (laughs) only having, you know, the same conversations over and over again with the same people. Um, It's uh, yeah, it's an, an interesting dynamic. That's for sure. You know, and like like you say, like you even even when you got home to St. John's and St. John's is a lovely place. I've only been there once. I hitchhiked back and forth across Newfoundland in like 2002 when I was a kid. 
you know, New Newfoundland or St. John's is a colorful place. You know, the people paint all their houses, all these wild and wacky colors. <laughs> Jelly bean um, robe. <laughs> yeah. Lot, lots of different characters. Um, the Harbor is um, compact enough that you can like walk around it and see all the boats and, you know, it, it has its own energy and its own charms. But as you say, if you live there full time, it's it, you're dealing with the vicissitudes of North Atlantic weather, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, I, 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 I like I say, I'll, 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 I'll take your word for it. That's that it's not a lot of fun if you like the sun. Yeah, and you know, there's a sort of saying that oh, uh, yes, yeah, summer was on a Thursday last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i mean <laughs> I, I i lived in the far north for a little while i mean I, I i did i did a few winters up in Yellowknife, and um i did one season doing the mackenzie valley winter road and you know went, went to these little places like norman wells and colville lake and you know i i, I can only imagine their summers are equally short like st john's are yeah, so I, you know, I stayed there for a good solid uh, three years. Um, after that, I moved to Charlottetown. Um, I decided to go back to upgrade uh, my marine license at the Holland College Marine Training Center, and that's in, uh, well, Summerside in Prince Edward Island. Uh, so I was there for about eight months and then moved to Charlottetown and ended up staying in PEI for 10 years. Um, before almost 10 years nine and a bit years anyway before then uh moving to back to Halifax uh which I guess was just about six and a half years ago we ended up here so yeah I, I did stay on the east coast um mostly because when I was living in PEI I met the man who's now my husband um and uh is he yeah, a native we, is he a native islander no he was born in Quebec Oh. But but his father was uh, an islander, born on uh, in PEI, and and so his father's side of the family is all mostly still in PEI. Ten years in Prince Edward Island. Did you ever? So I, I I've heard a few things from different people that have moved there. Yep. Um, just like I mean, you know, obviously Newfoundland's an island, and there's Newfie culture, and it's its own thing. But PEI. Um, I, I've also only ever been once. I was also on a hitchhiking mission. I did a lot of that when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, I was on both sides of that equation too. Being a trucker, uh -oh. I picked up lots of hitchhikers. <laughs> but um, I, I go to PEI, and everybody there I met, even though they could tell right away that I was from away because of my accent. Um, <laughs> they would still ask me what my last name was. Like it was an it was like an automatic social thing there, which ties into observations I've heard from other people who moved to Prince Edward Island, that it's got its own weird insular cultural thing going on. That's uh, they, that's, they try to place you somehow for sure. I got it that a lot in Newfoundland. Oh, Bonzer. That's not an Island name. No, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, at least the Newfies have a, have a, a reputation for being super friendly i mean i don't know if that's just like an initial thing or does that like wear off after you've been there a while like i'm not sure uh, well it, yes when you're a visitor when you're a tourist 
to Newfoundland, best kind. They, they, the, you know, they will. It's, it's certainly a very friendly welcome. Uh, if you are a female Upper Canadian who moves to Newfoundland to work, then you're taking a job from a hardworking Newfoundlander. <laughs> and the attitude changes quite quickly. No kidding. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. So there's that, um, which I did not experience uh, in PEI, um, that type of attitude. And, I, I you know, um, I actually found the uh, Prince Edward Islanders to be far more uh, welcoming. Huh. So, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, but the big, but you know, I mean, yeah, I moved to Newfoundland for my job, but I was highly qualified and, and skilled and not just anybody can do that job. Um, and you know, I felt like Newfoundlanders forget how many of them moved to Alberta. To I was going to, I was going to so say, <laughs> cause, uh, I, uh, between, yeah, I, I did seven years in Western Canada, uh, uh, four in the Northwest Territories and three in Alberta. But my time in the Northwest Territories was always, you know, half of that was going back and forth from Edmonton to Yellowknife. So, I mean, you know, effectively, effectively, I did seven winters in Northern Alberta with a few excursions further north. And the Newfies and Nova Scotians and you know, even a few PEI people, yeah. lots of guys from New Brunswick. Like it seemed like the whole, if if not for most of the Maritimes decamping to Alberta, they wouldn't have anybody to work. You know. Yeah, and you know, it's almost like a, a way of life here. Like it's a lot of people where they grew up. It was expected that that's what the, they were going to do is move west to to get work. So, um, I'm not so sure why it was such a um, offensive thing for me to move east to get work but you know uh i guess it doesn't, doesn't always work both ways no um, no no <laughs> H humans are nothing if not inconsistent um in in certain respects yeah so uh that was anyway that was my experience uh but uh i, I really um i mean the, the you get the uh there is a group uh, called the CFAs that come from a ways um, and, you know, you might get labeled that way or some are proud to be the CFAs, but they did have little uh, like network where people who weren't from the island um, could get together and, and uh, um, socialize, but I never did participate in any of that. Um, I, 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 think a, I, I had a friend, this guy I hung out with, I lived in New Zealand for a little while. Uh, I've been there a couple times and I, I became pretty friendly with this local fellow named Ryan and he ended up getting married to a young lady from Sweden and he moved back to Sweden and he lived in Sweden with her for a long time and he found the same thing with the Swedes where you know he they they put on an air of being you know uh, cosmopolitan and world world travelers and accepting of everybody and super progressive and all the rest of it. But like he felt totally socially frozen out of everything. And um, he had the same thing. Like when he was hanging out in Sweden, 
most of the people he hung out with were non-Swedes because even his wife's family never really accepted him. And oh, wow. he found he just found this like weird social isolation. I mean, he learned how to speak Swedish. He put his best foot forward, tried to do the whole thing. And um, that that social isolation that he experienced was part was I wouldn't say a major part, but it was definitely part of the reason him and his wife ended up getting divorced and he left. Oh, wow. That's too bad. No, so, it's uh, not unique to the Maritimes then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the dark the dark side of the Newfies. Um. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's, uh, I have to say, like working at sea, like as you, you know, gotten to travel quite a bit in your career, I, it's, uh, that has been one of my favorite parts of my time. Like I worked on a private yacht all over the Mediterranean and uh, installed um, high voltage power cables in the South China Sea, um, you know, did uh, work in the Gulf of Mexico. Like it's, uh, there's been lots of opportunities for uh, some great adventures. Um, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So, so you're in the South China Sea and you said you're laying electrical cables, like ones like along the bottom, like the seafloor. Yeah, so there was another vessel that came and did um, uh, like trenching to build a, a little uh, ditch. It had to be about a meter down. And then the high voltage power cables went from mainland China to Hainan Island. It was about 30 kilometers and we had three cables that went down. Um, and then somebody else comes to make the connections at the end. But uh, then we uh, had a like a machine that kind of buried it um afterwards um it was pretty neat like we had uh uh we were on a barge that was operated with the dynamic positioning system so my job was there as senior dynamic positioning operator um to um maintain the vessel's movements while all the operations were happening subsea we had remotely operated vehicles or rovs on board that went down um, to keep eyes on the operation. Um, the ROVs, when they were down there, we saw um, like mines <laughs> from, uh, you know, the war, cause we were in the area very close to Vietnam. Um, so there was, uh, that was, you know, we had to sort of step back and uh, get that investigated before going any further not wanting oh, to disturb man. it. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was just uh, really interesting things to, to be seen in the way, different way things operate in different bodies of water. Right. So was there any particular sea or area of the world you worked in where, for lack of a better way of putting it, it was like the 401. There's just like boats everywhere coming and going like super busy. Yeah. Over in that part of the world, like uh, I wasn't. I didn't work out of Singapore, but Singapore is like that. Um, and where we were in, in that part of the South China Sea was quite busy um, with with traffic. Uh, parts of the Gulf of Mexico is um, pretty high traffic. There's a lot of uh, oil and gas exploration offshore there. And then the English Channel. But they, things really operate very smoothly there. You know, way it's all set up. It's... Uh, designed for a lot of movement in both directions to uh, so operate there's, there's like there's like uh 
uh, so would there be like lanes, right? So like you're in the English Mm -hmm. channel and let's say you're a boat that's like, you've come out of the Mediterranean, you come out of some port, say in like Italy or um, maybe Israel or somewhere and you're going to Rotterdam. So like, do you, do you, do you hug one particular coastline? So it's like the French side, like northbound and the English side, like southbound or something like that. Yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's much like, um, the road <laughs> that way. Yeah. Um, that, uh, the, there's very well laid out, uh, lanes on a chart. Uh, you have to be able to interpret what's on the chart with what's on your radar, now with electronic charts and radar overlays, there's definitely more technology uh, making it easier. Uh, we also have AIS, uh, automated um, identification system. So then every boat like emits uh, their position and their vessel information. So instead of back in the day, you would have to, if you wanted to contact another vessel to find out what their intentions were, uh, you know, you'd say like vessel in position, and list a latitude and longitude. Now you can look and be like, oh, that ship is named, you know, Cuddy Sark. And then you can call them by name, you know? <laughs> and uh, 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 so it makes uh, communications. Uh, uh, so is everybody, ev- everybody in certain areas all monitoring uh, a particular maritime radio frequency, like at all times? They're supposed to be. Yep. <laughs> um, VHF channel 16 is an emergency channel um, that's monitored. And then the different areas, like when you come into Halifax Harbor, uh, you'll switch to channel 12 or 14, uh, depending if you're in the inner harbor, outer harbor, and then the um, Marine Communications and Traffic Services Center will be monitoring that. And you, you can contact the other vessels on those stations, but you should always have 16 on the uh, you know, listening. Um, that's where people would send out their May days and things like that. Um, and English is the international language of the sea, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean everybody's going to understand each other's English either. Um, I was going to say, if you're, if you're over <laughs> in this, let's say you're in the South China Sea or anywhere off the coast to say China or Vietnam or something, and there's like, you know, um, hundreds, if not thousands, of different little fishing vessels. Uh, they're they they're not carrying radios. <laughs> um, they were on like literally like uh, what you would call a Chinese junk boat, uh, you know. And uh, it was they yeah. But we did carry two translators, uh, so each shift had their own translator. Um, because the barge we carried. Um some Chinese crew, they had to be on board as part of the contract. So we also had very um, strange communications with them. So the translator helped with that. Um, so not just, you know, vessel to vessel or ship to shore, but also even internally on board the ship, we had um, the translator available. Our translator had actually worked as a waiter in New York for 12 years. So his English was quite good. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the, the the people you meet at sea, um, just the, the the incredible wide variety of um, just different nationalities and ethnicities and social classes. Like I, I imagine you've had a pretty 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 interesting human interactions. Never mind just being out on the boat. 
Oh, a hundred percent. It was uh, wide ranging. Um, and it was really good on one vessel I was on. We carried um, up to 132 people between the Marine crew and the construction crew. And we represented 17 different countries on board. There were a lot of really interesting people uh, from various backgrounds. And uh, it was it was really interesting observing the interactions between people from the different nationalities on board. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, friendly, uh, friendly classism, friendly racism, friendly ethnicism, <laughs> uh, and or not so friendly is is sort of international. Like everybody, everybody makes fun of everybody else, no matter where you are, right? Yeah, yeah, there was a, a a bit of that for sure, and then I enjoyed kind of sitting back and observing two people with both of whom English was their second language, um, having conversations. And uh, oftentimes I, I did have to jump in and um, interpret <laughs> the English because the, the accents made a lot of the words sound quite differently. Um, so it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. I enjoyed that part of it, the, the social aspect alongside the work. I wonder, there's um there's a couple so the trucking industry is pretty lopsided towards dudes right like yeah um, uh, in the United States I think it's something like 94 or 95 percent of truck drivers are men in Canada it's like 96 uh, uh, at sea what's that percentage oh gosh it'd be hard to say when I first started it was would be a lot smaller than it is now. Um, I did notice that working for a European company, I they had more females on staff than the Canadian companies at the time. But now working in the office in the Coast Guard, I see we have a, a fair number of females on board our vessels. Um, so it, it is increasing, but uh, still still you know far in favor of of uh the male numbers are just higher right um, it's, it's gonna stay that way i know that i mean i knew in thunder bay a family friend's daughter was uh, an officer on the great lakes and my dad connected us before i went to the program because he thought oh you should talk to julie um you know she'll give you some great insight and advice and whatnot and when i did speak with julie she was like so i'm probably not gonna say what your dad wants me to say she's like well i'm just gonna say don't do it like she <laughs> She's like, I know you're going to do what you want to do anyway, but don't do it. I, I didn't really understand why she would say that at the time. Um, but yeah, the longer, you know, when I was actually in the industry, I could see why, um, you know, I mean, she was older than me and started in the industry before me. So she would have had even less other females um, and, and working on the Great Lakes is uh, a whole nother kettle of fish, I'm sure. Um, and then, I mean, you often see, you know, dads at sea. A lot, lots of guys, they have families at home and whatnot, but you don't really run into moms at sea. Like, um, so if you're going to start a family, you're like, I, I mean, I couldn't continue personally going to sea and leave my 
sun for months at a time, you know, but uh, um, it just seems in a lot of cultures, it's the norm for the men to go away to work and whatnot. So there's that. And it is, it's like you always, as a female on board a ship, you basically have to work twice as hard and you're still considered half as good. It's just a unfortunate, like, you know, challenge that you come up against. Um, You really have to like every time, every single time you walk on a ship, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. You still have to prove yourself as a female. Whereas like a guy walks aboard and nobody that's an eyelid or doubts their capabilities, you know? So, um, it's it's a reality I found uh, in the in the industry, and so that can be you know a a, a bit frustrating um, when you know what you've accomplished, and you know when you walk aboard, it's yeah, not, there's there's it's there's, not some, a, there, there's something about like human social dynamics that you just no matter how hard some people might want to wish them away or try and change them, like they are what they are, yeah. Um, you know, and I follow a couple of folks online. There's like these organizations, you know, women in trucking, and they start trying to advocate, you know, for, you know, particularly female concerns um, when being, being truck drivers, you know, life on the road and different things they're, you know, up against. And, and I get it. Um, I don't, uh, I, I don't besmirch them, their projects, and I don't besmirch anybody trying to get any particular job, but at the same time, like there's sort of hard baked realities into the human experience that are just, they're always going to be there. And, um, I think the, uh, attempts, I mean, you know, whatever you can maybe try and shave the hard edges off them, but like, you know, dudes are dudes and women are women and that's that. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, you like to think that barriers are being broken and strides are being made, but uh, it's, it's slow. (laughs) Are there, are there, are there organizations that are trying to get more women to, uh, you know, take that, take the step to the life at sea? I mean, I would, you know, they certainly say advertising for the, the Coast Guard, they've, have you know women on the brochures and and things like that and uh they usually have a female seafarer at the like recruitment drives and things like that at the you know the booth or to go and speak in a school and things like that but um i don't know if there's any other you know sort of situation where that's happening i'm not really sure I, i you know i didn't know too much about it when i started um I just, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I just always go into everything with a can-do attitude and like never really thought about people thinking I couldn't do it. And (laughs) so when you come up against it, it's a bit of a slap in the face, but uh, no, I think just, uh, you know, it's a great, great career. Uh, You know, it was uh, exciting challenges, great people to meet, places to see um, and all of that. But yeah, it just depends what, uh, you know, kind of life, like long-term. I mean, if you don't want to start a family, like, then yeah, like you could do this for a really long time, I think, and uh, be quite happy and fulfilled. 
I'm going to say there's there's an awful lot of anti-natalists out there, or at least people who oppose as such. I, I used to be one when I was younger. I grew out of it. Um, thank God I have two beautiful daughters here and a wonderful family. But uh, there are some people who are serious about that. You know, maybe maybe they should go work on boats. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, certainly I was all career, career, career for a really long time. I mean, uh my had my son quite late in life. Like I, he was born two weeks before I turned 40. So I had already kind of a, a accomplished a, a lot of what I wanted to do at sea uh, before stepping back. Um, and uh, I'm kind of glad I did it that way, to be honest. Uh, uh, to, uh, I'm also glad that I did choose, make the choice to, to have him. Um, he's a pretty awesome little dude. And uh, do you have any other children or just the one son? No, just one and done. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I started late too. My, my eldest daughter was born when I was 39. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how, um, uh, uh, be it life at sea or life on the road, it tends to get in the way of certain accepted social norms and family formation and all the rest of that. I... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was definitely, I, I did feel like I had to make a choice between going to sea or having a family. Like I, I didn't feel like for myself that I could still do both. Some days I do more in that life, but, uh, every now and then I still get out on a boat. So, um, it kind of scratches the itch, I guess you could say. So, so stupid question. Do you and your husband have uh, some kind of pleasure craft together? No, we, well, yes, but it's not a marine pleasure craft. We have a Volkswagen Westphalia camper van. So we do a, <laughs> <laughs> we do land exploration. Um, my husband still works uh, in a seafaring capacity. He's a marine pilot who brings all the ships in and out of Halifax Harbor. Um, and so he spends his days on uh, all the different types of boats with all the different types of crews and uh going to all the different ports in the harbor and uh you know climbing up a rope ladder from a small pilot boat to a big ship or down uh if, if the vessel's departing um and so yeah when uh he he's got really no interest in owning a boat so so yeah so we we do uh we do some big trips with our camper van instead <laughs> all right well if you ever find yourself uh in the U.S., in the vicinity of Ithaca, New York, or upstate New York at all, make sure you give me a call and pop in and say hello. Absolutely. Yeah, I would do that for sure. Um, yeah, we're we're looking at uh, not this summer, the summer after doing another cross-country adventure, this time with our with our son in tow. And uh, so, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll have to coordinate something. Awesome. Well, on that note, um, thank you very much for uh, joining my show. And... Um, telling us all about your life at sea man that was super interesting yeah and i didn't even get to half of the half the story so the next time if if you want to do it again we'll have to just talk about the private yacht experience that's a whole nother world yeah no we, we should and um my cousin's ex-husband is a private yacht relocator crew guy his whole life has been in yachts he's australian nice um, yeah we could maybe Maybe I'll get him to come on. You can all you all can compare notes. 
<laughs> do a group chat. Oh, that'd be great. No, I appreciate uh, you uh, and your podcast and uh, taking the time to talk. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll look forward to hearing this uh, when the, when the when it's published. All right, cool. Thanks very much, Jessica. Thank you. Have a good one, Gord.